And if that ever erupts, and believe me, there have been many times a scientist has said, oh, looks like it might be happening, that would destroy pretty much, at the least, the center of the United States. Uh, but Jeff had conceived this, this idea of a world post-apocalyptic and how, how the rest of the country and the rest of the world would then have to find ways to survive. And it's all predicated on the idea that technology has allowed them to float portions of their cities. And each one of those cities now have become fiefdoms in their sense, where they compete with each other. The idea of national boundaries no longer exists. Territorial boundaries now exist. Anyway, it, and it's a fascinating group of stories by um, some incredibly amazing writers, uh, Kevin J. Anderson, uh, Mike Resnick, uh, one of his last stories, if not his last story, uh, David Gerald. Um, yeah, some pretty, uh, Jody Lynn Nye, I believe, is in there, and it's just, just some incredible authors. Uh, and, and then there's me, but still, uh, I was privileged to be able to write a couple of stories for it. So that's catching you up on what the book is. And it, it was finally released um, through Wordfire Press, um, Kevin J. Anderson's publishing company. It's also on Amazon. But if you are going to, uh, uh, to order it, uh, take a look at Wordfire Press first, only because Amazon, Amazon charges a little bit more because of the artwork. And the artwork inside is just absolutely stunning. Um, and these are all short stories, right? Correct. The, uh, the, the price uh, is about half if you went to work by Amazon really jacked the price up on it. So keep that in mind if you want to get the book. Yeah, I can go through the list of the writers right here. Uh, Stephen, of course. Um, uh, Danielle McPhail, Brenda Cooper, Jody Lynn Nine, Steve Perry, Mike Resnick with Andrea Stewart, and it was Mike's last story. Um, bless his heart. Uh, David Gerald, uh, Steve and myself wrote a story. Um, Mark Teppo, Jim Wright, Raven Oak, Cat Rambo. Yeah, a whole list of uh, third story. It broke up a little bit there toward the end. Uh, Kevin and Sam Knight, <clears throat> and then Stephen has the last story in the book. So. Yeah. He's in the front, middle, and back. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and a lot of that just evolved as we were talking about it. I mean, I was, since these, the people who wrote these stories are all established authors, um, best-selling authors, uh, I was extremely honored to be able to participate. And, um, yeah. Yeah, and it's a fun experience. And I'm also a bit of a, you know, I'm a historian and a little bit of a futurist, so trying to project this into the future. Uh, Jeff and I had many phone calls about, you know, speculating on what would happen to society. And then, you know, you have all, all of these different authors putting these stories together, and suddenly it's it's thrown in the lap of uh, Jeff and Jennifer Brozak uh, to actually try to, to make a cohesive story out of the mess of all these individual stories, you know. Anybody who's done any, any type of editing over more than one story, you got to put it together. So, and they did a, they did an amazing job, and uh, I'm just really proud of it. Uh, uh, Jennifer Brozak did a great job. She's an amazing editor. Uh, thank God she was on the on the project. 
That's cool. That's cool. I I have heard about that. I mean, about trying to edit uh, short stories together to make it a cohesive book. I mean, do you like put it in like chapters of like that they're like focused on the same kind of thing? Is that what you're doing? Well, the, the stories are pretty diverse. They're in different parts of the country and the world, for that matter. And so they're all dealing with different subject matter within this world. They all pick fairly unique places and stories to work on. So they're all different in a way, quite a bit different, actually, uh, in many ways. So that wasn't much of an issue. Uh, we tried to keep it fairly linear. You know, definitely in the beginning stories. Uh, Stephen has the first story, which sets the tone for the whole uh, the whole book, Fatherhood. Uh, we did that on purpose to kind of lay the groundwork for the world for the readers to to kind of get an idea of that. And I did a uh, a nice timeline uh, at the beginning of it to uh, I don't know if it's nice or not. It's a timeline at the beginning of it to. Uh, to show dates and times for the readers as well. So we tried to set the world up as best we could uh, in the beginning. And it, the first few stories after that. Uh, how what was difficult, the, the difficult thing for me and Jennifer and uh, uh, was, was dealing with the writers individually and their quirks. And, uh, you know, editors might see things differently than the writer and vice versa. And myself, as God for a better term, I guess, of the whole thing, I have to kind of keep an eye of the continuity and make sure none of the writers go crazy on me. They come up with things that, uh, that would not happen or be part of it or... Um, at the flip side of that, being surprised by things they would come up with that I had thought of, or the late great John Pitts, who helped me write the Bible, which is the uh, kind of the dictionary encyclopedia for the writers to go off on, uh, to read beforehand, hopefully read, and then they can create their stories from the world he and I created. And Stephen became a big part of that later on, helping me uh, further uh, explore the world and think of things. So Stephen's been a big part of this. He's kind of being humble, but thank you. <laughs> that was the difficult part, was dealing with writers and making sure everything in the continuity was correct. Um, how far in the future is this supposed to happen? Um, in 2085, scientists announced to the world that the supervolcano Yellowstone, I've, I've not said this too many times in the past, <laughs> he says with a straight face. 2085, scientists announced to the world that uh, in about six and a half years, Yellowstone's going to go, and when it, when it goes, it's going to be a full-on eruption. Having said that, there's different degrees of eruption. So the world has six years to prepare, and anti-grav technology had already been invented and used by the military. The civilian population... Uh, had use of it at that point, and so knowing that a full on blown nuclear winter would happen, volcanic winter, uh, um, that could, you know, have decades of, of, of just darkness and cold 
they uh, decided to build these cities and lift them up into the, uh, the sky. Um, so cities are lifted high into the atmosphere. Fleets uh, of airships are built to withstand the coming centuries, hopefully, and cities have access to those. Uh, genetic mutations take place to try to modify themselves to maybe survive what's coming. Um, all kinds of things happen in those six years. And then Yellowstone goes and everything goes dark. And then decades and centuries later, the cities and these airships slowly connect with each other again. Trade routes are opened up, alliances. Um, the old ruins of the earth, the ancient golden age of man, and that's that's what the ships now explore. You know, getting uh, anything they can find to salvage or scavenge to use. The, a lot of it's used in the black economy of the cities, back and forth, trade. So, and then uh, we let the writers loose. So it's set about three centuries after Yellowstone. A lot of the stories. Having said that, there are a couple that are set right after the beginning of it. Uh, Stephen and Brenda Cooper's story. But you know, all the other stories take place centuries later. Okay. That's pretty much it. That's interesting. It's, you got to uh, read the book to uh, find out all the other details. <laughs> it sounds kind of, it, it's, um, Pardon me? It, is there, is it a hopeful book? Because these different communities <laughs> got uh, their, they, their survival? Or is it just, uh, is it like a dark one? There's a lot of dark, I, I have to admit, uh, but there are some stories that are uh, hopeful. There are some stories that have good endings. It's not all dark and bleak. I have to point that out to Leslie, my wife, because she, uh, especially the story I I wrote with Stephen. It, it's the it's the darkest story of the bunch, of course, of the 14 stories, the story you and I wrote, which she points out to me quite a bit how dark it is. But no, there are good stories. Uh, hopeful stories in the book. Yeah, I think it's mostly like um, what what you find with this is uh, one of my comments about this has been that there is a, a there is that caldera that does exist, and yes, there is a potential of it exploding. And I have said that with the collapse of mankind and the rebuilding of civilization, um, with humankind struggling to try to restore what was something that we had before, but they can't do it. So with the recreation of civilization and humankind, um, what the approach that Jeff has taken is actually an extremely optimistic outlook of the fact that we would be able to do that after what's basically what, which would become called an extinction-level event. So what you find in a lot of the stories, and I, I mean, I, of course, was able to read... Uh, um, the uh, stories from the other authors as well. I dove right into that, and it was like incredibly fa fascinating to see everybody's interpretation of this. Um, you basically are seeing a reflection of what humanity is, a reflection of how we struggle to preserve certain things about us, how we have to abandon them, um, sometimes abandoning things that we're comfortable with, um, although difficult at, at the time, turns out to be a blessing in disguise. So you're really seeing a reflection of what we are. 
Um, will we give up? Well, no. Will we still have elements among us who will take advantage of others? Yes. Will we have those who will rise above their own personal welfare and safety in order to preserve others? Yes. So you've got a good mix here of the dark and the light. But overall, if you step back and, and take a look at what these stories are, this is a reaffirmation of the ideals of what we want to believe humanity is capable of. Interesting. I've never thought of it quite that way. Interesting. We should read the book. <laughs> I should read the book. If that was to happen now over the next few decades, it would not be pretty. No. It would be uh, it would be very very bad. So I had never thought of it as overall an optimistic look. Uh, there are a couple of stories in there that are character studies as well. So it's a, it's a wide range of styles for sure. Yeah. The way the world yeah, is right The way the world is right now, I'm I it would not be a good thing if that happened because it's not the the world's not in a good place right now. <laughs> well, when you're dealing with something and I agree, I, you know, I can agree with you. I just um <laughs> when you're fight. dealing with something that that is the premise of this book, as I said, a, an extinction-level event, you basically are resetting almost everything about humanity. Um, the entire Earth is basically resetting, and civilization has to reset. So, you know, the question of how will it rebuild? Will we make the mistakes of the past? You know, human nature actually says we will, because we do it all the time. So, is it a bad time for this to happen, or a good time? Well, you know, it's always a bad time to have the center of the country blow up. Um, would we come together? Would we not? I mean, there have been many, many stories dealing with the idea of, of nations or even neighborhoods arguing with each other, hating each other, and suddenly they bond together because of an outside event. Mm -hmm. Usually it's dealing with like aliens landing. But suddenly they bond together. Um, we've seen that happen in our history. Uh, it's an interesting point. Uh, the Bible, the the the, uh, the Bible, which is what John Pitts and I created for the writers to go off of, like an encyclopedia for them to use, and not stray too far away from my original idea. Uh, one of the things we have take place, and it's all backstory, really, for the writers. It's not even really involved in the, in the actual anthology, but the backstory is right before. Uh, when the event is announced, the scientists announce that this is going to happen. The world does bond together. Is John and I describe as one of the one of the stronger moments in centuries of humanity coming together. It's it ever, and it lasts six months. And unraveled. No animosities and no grudges, and uh, things take place as it leads up to Yellowstone. You know, people start freaking out, and this and that happens. So I kind of do it backwards in a way. So that with it, even within that degree, a lot of the cities going up. Uh, one in particular was uh, salvaging all of the records and books uh, uh, that mankind had created and saved up to that point in the, a university city in California. Colleges come together to be to build their own city called UC uh, UC Tower and. Uh, to hold all the knowledge and, and save it. So uh, 
the ending I have at, when Yellowstone goes is, is kind of bleak. Uh, but there's uh, there's also moments of uh, of hope with the with the map. I guess I hadn't really thought of it that that way, Steve. But now you got me thinking about my own uh, my own creation in a way I hadn't thought about before. It's interesting because I remember after the Northridge quake, people were really nice to each other. They're really, it might have been the shock of it, but they were really polite and they, 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 no, there was no road rage. People uh, cared for neighbors. They brought, you know, if they knew that they didn't have food, they brought them food or water or gasoline or whatever they needed. I mean, people were really nice. It lasted for about a month. And then people got normal again, but it was it, it, there. There is a shock of something horrible happening that makes people work together. Well, Ronald Reagan has his great speech he did, you know, in front of the United Nations, I believe. You know, it, if we had an alien invasion from somewhere else, he actually says, you know, he wonders if humanity would come together and all the while I'm paraphrasing all the world, all the wars would be forgotten you know, to deal with this alien invasion. It's quite striking to hear him say that. <clears throat> you can look it up. So, I, yeah, we do come together. I mean, there's a lot of good. I mean, this is a difficult time we live in, but uh, there's always hope. I think. Yeah. And it's, it's how we react to it. I mean, there's a, there's a uh, sociological study um, of the difference between the tribe and the super tribe. And a tribe is usually no more than like 30 uh, people and it, it is referencing to early tribes where basically you know everybody in the tribe you could have minor squabbles you could have disagreements but you are supporting each other you are you have a unity of identity um if you uh, use new york as an example if you have certain neighborhoods of new york those neighborhoods are what would be described as the tribe culture you know everybody there you walk up and down the street you know, however, if you out, go outside of that, you generally keep your focus. You don't look at anybody. You don't engage them. It's always those people, and they're a problem, and they're noisy, and whatever. There's always a complaint about that. So that's a tribe. However, if you fly a couple of planes into the building, suddenly all of those individual tribes that squabbled before become what's called a super tribe. And a super tribe unites because they all have a common interest. Now, does it last? No, it doesn't. Once the threat is gone, we can now go back to the way we were. But during that time, yes, they unite. And what Jeff described uh, from the book is, yes, once everybody knew that this was going to happen, it was predicted, the governments of the world said, you know what, let's forget these little squabbles. We've got to deal with that. And they came together in a sense. They all agreed to share technology. They all worked together so that they could try to save humanity. Now, what the stories, however, deal with in the book is after this has happened, centuries after this has happened, what are we as human beings doing? Are we going back to those squabbles? And yes, there's a lot of that in the book. However, have we learned from it? Yes, there's a lot of that in the book. But it's basically, you know, it's a future telling of us in that scenario. And the interesting thing for me, as somebody who loves history, is that We've gone through similar things before in the history of our species, and we follow very similar patterns. So now take it on this huge, grand scale 
of a near extinction event. What have we learned? What have we failed to learn? And that's what these stories relate. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. I was just thinking about one of the things you said. One of the things I find interesting was the space station. Um, the Americans, the Russians, the European space, uh, the Israeli and the Japanese all worked together in perfect harmony. Nobody fought. They all got along. There was no backstabbing. The entire time, everybody, uh, uh, the Russians helped the Americans get up because we lost our shuttle uh, program. That lost their, we did lose shuttles, but it was, we lost the program. So the Russians actually helped us get up there. I mean, if, if there's a focus like science, pure science, and a belief in a good job for all of humanity, I think that's what you guys are talking about. Am I wrong? Well, I would say a different a different focus on that, but yes, I mean the idea that they're all working together for a greater cause. But uh, the space station just is an interesting example because a lot of that dealt with um, the advantages of shared science, shared technology, and uh, shared commerce. Now, what the individual nations do with that, however, <laughs> could be the problem. But the idea that we could all learn from each other, yes. And they got paid handsomely for it, too, I might add. So. Mm -hmm. That's I true. Taking us up. Oh, you mean the Russians? Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm I'm sure they got paid and, and paid handsomely. But what I'm saying is, it, it, you know, if you listen to our leaders, they all hate each other. Um, if you listen to that. Um, th but when you listen to the scientists, they all are backing each other up. That's all I'm saying. Oh, it's always, it's pretty much always been that way to one degree or another, um, I would say. Uh, science, and science I think is, uh, too bad we are, we, we can't be ruled by science, in my opinion, in a lot of ways, but a lot of problems would be solved. There's a, yeah. there's a peacefulness about it. There's, there, there's a, a goodness. And, I, and I, it, it seems to be missing in a lot of other parts of society. Well, I think you're coming back to what human nature is, again, as we try to examine in the book. Um, science is. Science is self-critical. It has to be. That's the advance of science. Yeah. Um, fact exists. However, it's what you do with them. Once it leaves the realm of fact and science and goes into the realm of opinion or usage, then the individual human being decides whether it's good or bad. Facts and science aren't good or bad. They are. They just exist. It's what we do with them. And that's the study here. If we, if we could float cities, if we had that potential, and we had the potential to create these airships, would we use them to share knowledge? Would we use them to share aid, to share medicine? Or would we arm them? Or would we use them to commercialize? Or, you see, now mm -hmm. we're going up against the idealism versus what humanity is unfortunately like. Or fortunately like. It's that wide spectrum. So, again, it goes back to what, uh, what Jeff said. You know, science is. Science just exists. But what, is it, what happens to science when it is in human hands? That's the question. Put it this way very, very, very briefly. 
Um, you talked about the space station. Okay, a large part of our space program came out of one particular area, the military. Our early rockets were based on the designs used in World War II. Previous to that, uh, Goddard had done his work. Everybody was doing minor work in it, but the advance in it. So when something is fired off a launching pad and hands up and heads up into the air, that's science. What it does once it's up there depends on who sent it up there. True. That's very true. It's sad, but it's true. I mean, sometimes it's good, but sometimes it's not. <laughs> But it's interesting yeah, our, because our, our early, oh, I'm sorry. Our early space program, you know, was it was German scientists. So, you know, us and the Russians split up the German scientists. They took some, and we took some. And uh, Werner von Braun and his group came over, and next thing you know, we're sending up rockets to uh, space, mm -hmm. as they were. People will be surprised at how much technology you have today came out of basically military exploration because that's subsidized by governments but um you know everything from hello the internet that we're mm -hmm. on right now mm -hmm. um that was originally connected to the defense department working with colleges and universities computers. for research and development computers so, again you know it's how how we use it and computers uh, and also um the different kinds of um you know Microwave ovens and all the stuff we have that we take, they, we don't think much about Teflon that is on our pots and our uh -huh. pans. That's all it was from military use, and then it was from space use. And they, and when they found out, oh, this works really good in space, let's sell it to the world um, as Teflon on pans. <laughs> well, silly putty. Oh, I know. That was cool. Originally for a military purpose. That Silly is putty so was cool. actually developed for military usage. Yeah. It was a synthetic rubber during World War II, and then when World War II ended, there was all this silly putty that the government had, and they didn't know what to do with it. So they sold it to this guy who looked at it and said, well, what does it do? Huh, it bounces, it picks up ink, you can stretch it, but if you pull it hard, it breaks. And that became the advertising for Silly Putty. Mm-hmm. I know. I, I saw that on, um, they had a thing about games and, and toys, and that was one of the, uh, the, the segments was about that. Yeah, I, and a lot of stuff came that way. Sure. But I, I, I find it fascinating. I, it's just the, it's the roots of things is always interesting. Oh, absolutely. And, and again, you know, bringing it back to the uh, to last cities of Earth, the roots of things can be projected forward. So take a look at how things developed in the past and try to project that forward into future. Every science fiction, or I should say every popular science fiction franchise, uh, whether it be novels, film, or television, has used that as a premise mainly because it's identifiable with the readership and the, um, and the audience. But it's taking those those roots that are common to us and then saying the magic words, every writer, every creator has this magic word in the back of their head, these magic words, what if? Nice. And that's what this is. What, I mean, simplest, right down to it. What, what is you know, Jeff's original thing? What if the center of the, the uh, country exploded? What if? And everything came out of that. Yeah. 
yeah, I mean, that's really how every idea comes about. Curiosity. What if? What are we go What if we do this? What if we do that? That's pretty much every idea comes from that. It's a cool thing. It's one of the good things about mankind. <laughs> well, it's, it's the creative process. What you do with it or not do with it. Ideas come and go, lots of ideas. Uh, Steve Perry, one of my writers, and he's a fantastic writer. <clears throat> um, I was sitting in on one of his panels at a convention one time, and he, he, they were talking about writing. Uh, he goes, you know, ideas come left and right. He goes, I get ideas all the time. It's whether you can sit down and do something with it. That's the, that's the real test. He goes, ideas are easy. It's what you do with it is is the hard problem, the mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. But sometimes an idea comes along where you just go, I really need to pursue this. I need to see where this goes. Yeah, I. I, I oh, sorry. I was, was going to say I totally agree with that. I mean, ideas are where the mainstay of everything is. If, it, it, but it takes creativity and it takes concentration and it takes stamina and it takes focus and it takes a lot of hard work. It doesn't just happen. Oh no, it doesn't just happen. <laughs> This is almost seven years I've been working on this. Exactly. So. Yeah. I'm just stubborn, I guess. <laughs> I, but the what if also, it's, it's, the what if is like a, excuse the, uh, the analogy, the what if is like a virus. When you have a bunch of creative people and you ask them the same what if, it's amazing how the web spins from each particular person and starts to join together. Because there are certain commonalities that are going to happen. If you're talking at a post-apocalyptic event, there are certain things that almost every creative person will come up with because they're just basically, you know, baseline things. But then watching how each one becomes unique as each person answers that, what if? When, when Jeff first presented this to me and we were talking about it, um, there was a... A, a very thing, a, a very simple thing that popped in the, the back of my head, uh, which was these floating ships, these flying ships. Um, how would they react to the atmosphere? And my what if was was, well, what if they couldn't? What if the particles in the atmosphere would do shred the gas bags, um, the type of uh, flight mechanisms they have? Well, that's you know because there would be a lot of particles still left in the atmosphere even after you know a hundred years. But then again, I also thought, well, what if that happened? It would also create a static electricity effect. What if you could harness that static electricity? What if the vessels actually had a way of harnessing the static electricity and using it to power part of their engine? So what if they had a grit? See how this what if just goes crazy. Now, what I just told you, none of that is actually in the book. You won't read any. There's no place where that's explained or even talked about. However, it's an example of the what if effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Uh, which we ended up doing uh, artwork based on that idea as well, right? So uh, that was an hour-long discussion on a lot of the power grid thing. It's just yeah. how that happens. Just and, it was, and it was fun. That was the thing. For creative people, that's fun. Actually, the first time I ever wrote a story was something like that. Some uh, My teacher...
wrote a what if up on the board and told us to write two or three sentences. I ended up writing 12 pages. I was the only one. And she looked at me differently from then on. Going, she went, oh, this is a creative kid. It was a Greek mystery that I wrote. I was about nine. <laughs> you were in Yeah, it's just really funny because you brought that up. I remember that. See, I was always, I was always a storyteller, or as they called it back then, a liar. Yeah. Uh, now I always was. I, for whatever, I can't remember a time that I wasn't looking at things and kind of manufacturing these fantasies out of them. Um, I was fortunate in the sense that I had, first of all, parents that encouraged me to do that, and also venues that I could actually express it. So I think too many people want to say what if and then pursue it, but unfortunately they're kind of embarrassed to do it because ah, kids do that. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure I, I'm going to speak for Jeff uh, for a moment because this is expressing something about me. I still don't know what I'm going to do when I grow up. <laughs> I haven't figured that out. <laughs> I'm just having too much fun doing this stuff. It's funny because, no, I always wrote, but I never wrote really in school, and I was a new kid. I had moved from California to the Midwest, and the teachers looked at me like a, like I was like a dummy or something because I was from California and they didn't have quote we had a really good back then education system back then, um, and they looked at me because I was from California that I didn't have a good education up to that point, and they treated me that way. I I did not have a good time in this. Particular, that's why I say Midwest. I'm not going to say where. Um, but I did not have a good time in that school system. Let me put it that way. I was actually, one teacher told me I spelled my name wrong. My first name. Oh, yeah. Actually checked it off and put minus two points on my name. Yeah. That's, that's how they treated the new kid in school. Now, see, I was a new kid every three years because I was a military brat. And so the way I dealt with it is that I, I made people laugh. I entertained them. You know, I didn't, I'm not, wasn't a bully. I didn't want to go in and fight anybody. So for me, it was always, you know, make up a story, make them laugh, you know, try to, try to entertain them and, and get out of here with my skin. Yeah. So. Yeah, we moved a lot, but not like you did. We moved every three or so years. But it had nothing to do with the military. It was just. My parents kind of had wanderlust a little bit. <laughs> and and the, and the Warren, I'm sure. No, no. <laughs> None of that. Uh, no, my parents just liked to, they liked to, they, it was like flipping houses before that became a thing. They hmm. liked to do that. And we moved to Ohio because of the earthquake earlier in the year. Oh, I just gave the name of the state away. Oops. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure worse things have been said about Ohio. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Many, that's, many, that's why I can say that. We, we moved, um, like, uh, during the earthquake was in, the earthquake was in February. We moved in August. 
so we could acclimate to the weather in Ohio. That's what my parents' thinking were was. And um, and my school started in September, and I was not a happy girl for the whole two years I lived there. So anyway, and but when I ha wrote the story, I had one teacher who was actually liked me. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, something that one teacher makes a difference. I, I fondly remember my teachers. Um, you know, there were some that I some that I didn't like as much as others, but the best memories I have of teachers are the ones who allowed me to express myself. Mm -hmm. You know, not not to be unruly too much. Uh, I remember, um, I will say her name, um, I only know her last name because we all knew our teachers that way, Ms. Gum, G-U-M-M, -M. and I was in, she was a substitute teacher, and she had come in to substitute, and then our regular teacher got married and left. So the substitute teacher became our teacher. Now, she was, like, out of place. She didn't know the class very well, and I... I didn't know I was doing this, but I kind of befriended her because I, I kind of liked her. And one day, she knew that I, I did well on reading exams. Uh, keep in mind, I think this was like the fifth grade or the sixth grade. And we had a uh, shelf with a bunch of books in there. And so she asked me if I read books. And I didn't really read books. I just read what I had to read. And so she pulled out this book with this great cover art. Cover art is extremely important. Yes. And she said, oh, this is an interesting one. And she handed it to me. And it was called um, The uh, the, the um, Lost Mind of the Espectros, also known as The Haunted Mind. And it was written by Gordon Sheriff. And I read that book, and I came back to her, and I said, more. Mm -hmm. I want more. That started my love with reading and writing. And um, it was a transformation but she triggered that. And what if it happened later on? I have no idea. But what I do know is that she was the one who looked at me and said, here's something you might enjoy. She didn't force me. She didn't say you're going to write a report on this. She just handed it to me, and I loved it. And from that point on, um, you know, uh, when we celebrated Easter in my house, we used to get the little baskets with candy and stuff like that, kids, things that kids love. Well, my mother noticed I was reading these books. And the very next Easter that we had, when I went in and looked at the bunny basket, as we called it, it had three books in it. Aww. And I was thrilled. I so, love yeah, that. Teachers make a huge difference. Yeah. Everybody makes a difference somehow. But, you know, I really get upset when people complain about teachers uh, because we take them so much for granted. They make a difference. When I was uh, – I loved the creative – okay, the – two good teachers in Ohio. The other one was my music teacher. She pulled me out of a class because she heard us singing, and I was the one she pulled out, and I got into choir. So, And she was great. She, her, she taught us not just about singing, but she taught us about composers and uh, classical music. And I, I mean, if it wasn't for her, I probably wouldn't know any of the stuff that I know. 
uh, because she uh, uh, about music is because she, uh, she taught it to us. I mean, people thought that because they were in choir it was an easy A, but she didn't make an easy A. She made a study, <laughs> mm -hmm. and I liked it. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, that was like that led to all kinds of things. Uh, being in choir, it, it led it led to acting, it led to all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. But that was a teacher. So those are the two good teachers. <laughs> um, okay, we're coming to the end. How can they get the book? Where is it available? I mean, you did say at the beginning, but do you have a website that will point it out to them? All that good stuff. Uh, you can get the book through wordfirepress.com. Kevin J. Anderson's publishing company. He's also one of the writers in the book. He's been a major, major, major part of all this uh, this project getting it published. Uh, WordFirePress.com, and also through Amazon. So I highly suggest you go to WordFire to pick it up. Amazon's really tacking on a lot more uh, price to the book. Uh, hard, there's hardback, tradeback, and Kindle version. Uh, but because there's colored plates on each story within the anthology, artwork by myself. Uh, they've decided to to double the price, basically. So I suggest you go to wordfire.com and pick it up. Jeff Sturgeon's Last Cities of Earth. And um, I, do you have a website, Jeff? Uh, yeah, jeffsturgeon.com. Oh, <clears throat> it, it, it's got a lot of stuff. Can you tell a little bit about it? What's good about my website? No, tell a little bit more about your website. <laughs> oh, the website, uh, which would be what's good about the website. Okay, um, all right. <laughs> uh, uh, it's, uh, well, a lot of artwork uh, through my career and current stuff. There's several Last Cities of Earth pieces on the website. There's going to be an upcoming store set up on the website. It's not up and running yet. Uh, contact information on there. Uh, which uh, if you want to go to there and, and check it out, you can. Uh, uh, also, social media, uh, Instagram account, Jeffrey L. Sturgeon, also on Twitter. Uh, also on Facebook is The Art of Jeff Sturgeon and Jeff Sturgeon's Last Cities of Earth, which is where you can also leave messages to pick up a book and or go and look at who's involved in the project and artwork involved in the project and quite a bit of information uh, on that page on Facebook. So, lots of sources. Great. And I'm Steve, I know we have this stuff, but did you want to give any kind of uh, contact information for you? Uh, um, sure. Well, my website is um, StephenLSphere's.com, right? It is one word, and that's Stephen with a V. So Stephen L. Sears, the L is important. StephenSphere's.com is a different website. Stephen L. Sears is mine. Uh, mostly, what that website has is it um, has some nice, pretty graphics and some references to the TV shows I was working on before. Uh, it does have a couple of links to other books that I have either written or co-written. And in fact, I'm going to um, add uh, Last Cities of Earth on that very soon. Um, 
But uh, yeah, if you go there, pretty much you'll find a listing of how to reach all of my social media. But pretty much if you Google Stephen L. Sears, you'll probably find it. I'm on Facebook. Um, I think Instagram and Twitter, my handle is FSU Writer. That is FSU Writer. Um, yeah, so I, I'm pretty easy to find. Yeah, Google's a good point. Just Google, you know, our names and we'll pop up somewhere. Okay. That sounds good. All right. Um, I want to thank you both for coming on. Um, thank you. You're always wonderful, and I really appreciate your time. Absolutely. And thank you. Thank you. And thank you for chatting with Sherry. just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time <gasps> no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky play for free at luckylandslots.com daily bonuses are waiting no purchase necessary void were prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details